The CBF Podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soon Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendorf for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Amanda Bankhausen. Amanda is a professor of Old Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She is the author of a new book, The Gospel According to Eve. Amanda, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have this conversation with you. Now, you've been teaching Old Testament for well over a decade now. Um, Let's talk about some of your pet peeves with Old Testament students and armchair scholars that preach in the pulpit every Sunday. I I just, I I would love to, I got a series of questions and you don't have to answer them, but if you'll humor me, what's, what's the most annoying mispronunciation of a common Hebrew word quoted by students and pastors? (laughs) Actually, I think it's probably those names that we stumble over in English, because in Hebrew, they're, they tend to be slightly different. They're not translated um, according to the way they sound. And so we stumble over them in English and we stumble them over them in Hebrew as well. And so to watch our, our students sort of butcher the names <laughs> and then butcher them in English as well. Yeah, that's, that's a bit of a pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. So I, 
I butchered uh, a lot of things yesterday when I was preaching out of Second uh, Samuel chapter six. You know, the bringing the ark into the uh, into Jerusalem. Um, hopefully, people won't listen to my personal podcast on on that one. <laughs> I also, you know, extra pressure for me is uh, you know being off the campus of LSU. We actually had a kind of a, uh, I guess he did his entire career at LSU just around um, languages. And uh, so, and he taught Hebrew and Greek and German and all these <laughs> oh, other languages. The stakes were high. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like every time I pronounce anything on Sunday that's not English, which I don't even speak English uh, well, I feel like he's secretly judging me, but he's actually one of the kindest souls you'll ever meet. Okay. All right. Second question okay, around so the same lines. Just let me interject. Rule of thumb. Just be confident. If yeah. Confident, you know, people won't bat an eye. They'll just think, oh, that's an interesting way of saying that. <laughs> oh, bless, bless your heart. All right. Um, what's the most commonly used out of context passage of the Old Testament that you cringe every time you hear somebody preach out of this and talk about what the context is trying to say? Ooh. Uh, well, that's that's challenging for me to answer in part because I would sort of naturally go to uh, the texts in Genesis one through three as those texts that have been taken out of context and used in ways that that uh, they were not intended to be used. But right now, because I'm teaching the prophets, uh, I would probably go to Isaiah seven verse fourteen, where it talks about a son that is going to be a child that is going to be born to a young woman, and his name will be Emmanuel. And uh, because we tend to read this text through what Matthew does with it in terms of suggesting this is the fulfill this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, uh, then we lose the historical context of what's actually going on in those chapters in Isaiah 7 between Isaiah and Ahaz and what Ahaz, Isaiah is challenging Ahaz uh, to do, and that is to not be afraid and don't worry about uh, these kings that are rising up against him and, and don't make alliances. And uh, the sign is that there is a child who's going to be born and he uh, will eat from the land. And so if you just stay steadfast, God will be steadfast to you. But, you know, we lose all that when we immediately go to Matthew's interpretation or, or uh, reappropriation of that text. So, yeah. I was about to say, you just ruined like three quarters of the pastors who are listening to this Advent sermons. That they... <laughs> oh, no, that's not what I want. So let me redeem myself then. So what I would say is, I think you can you can go there, but I think you need to start with what Isaiah is trying to do in Isaiah 7 when he refers to this child, Emmanuel, right? So I would start there and do good interpretive work in Isaiah and then look at how Matthew is using that text, so. I also think it would have been hilarious if you said, actually, Second Samuel chapter 6 is, is, is a passage that... Yeah. Oh, shoot, missed that one. Yeah. You know, I can imagine that, you know, if you're an Old Testament scholar and language matters to you, like, it would be appropriate for you, you know, I, I imagine you have a couple kids that, um, and I don't assume that, but, you know, a fitting punishment would be to, like, handwrite again and again the the genealogy of noah or something along those lines um 
but anyways that's a really good idea (laughs) yeah (laughs) well i pass that along to you and don't cite my name when you uh, punish (laughs) either students or your children over such matters so um you know when deciding your phd focus why the old testament yeah so I, when I went through seminary, I was actually thinking more in terms of ministry and particularly either church planting or campus ministry. And I did serve in campus ministry for a number of years, but um, my husband and I realized it was really hard for both of us to be pastors. Um, And at that time, the denomination of which I'm a part didn't really um, have kind of an openness to a husband and wife team. They were still wrestling with women in ministry. And so we decided it was too much for us as a family to do two different ministries. And so I chose to go back and get my doctorate and thought that would be a way to live out my calling, my vocation. And I, I chose the Old Testament because I just so much enjoyed studying uh, Hebrew narrative. I love the language and the way that the language tends to open up our imaginations. Uh, It invites us into an engaging uh, way of reading the stories because there's, it uses ambiguity in such a creative way. Um, that it the reader actually has to be fully present in the story to make sense of the story. And I think that's different than what we find in the New Testament and in the Greek language. So I just, I, I was attracted to this idea of narrative and narrative that is engaging the reader in the work of understanding the story. All right. So I found with my professors, it's hard to get to know the person behind the lectures and books. So what do you want our listeners to know about you besides your work in the Old Testament and the book that we're going to get to momentarily? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I don't see myself primarily as a scholar. I see myself primarily as someone who is called to uh, be in ministry. And there's multiple dimensions of that in my life. So I see that playing out as in my role as a wife, as a mother, uh, in my participation in my church here in Grand Rapids, uh, in my life as a teacher here in my institution, and then also in my scholarship. It's really all sort of part of uh, responding to the call of God on my life in, in, in trying to uh, give expression to this faith that I have, right? This hope that I have in me, as Paul talks about. And you enjoy, you know, making your children write down the genealogy. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, uh, I, I used to teach Greek as well. So I, I teach Hebrew now and I used to teach Greek and I made both of my kids learn the Greek and the Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> and then I thought, well, it's not enough for them to know Greek and Hebrew. They need to know Latin too. So on Saturday mornings, we would have Latin lessons. And when they tell their friends this, their friends are just abhorred at this idea that their mother would have made them sit down for Latin lessons on Saturday morning. So it was probably, it's probably been an unusual household to grow up in. Uh, I'm aghast at the very thought of it. In fact, I I might just end this (laughs) 
podcast to question the integrity of somebody who wants to make their kids go through schooling on a Saturday. Oh, I know, right? It's yeah. terrible. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a mother am I? Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's get to your book. Uh, new book out, The Gospel According to Eve, A History of Women's Interpretation. Um, this brilliant book offers a compelling view of Genesis 1 through 3 from a woman's perspective with implications for uh, gender ideologies, leadership, voting, motherhood, marriage, and more. Um, let's talk about the conception of the book. Uh, where did yeah. it come from? Yeah, so I I share in the opening of the book that in some ways the seeds for this book were planted when I was in campus ministry. And I had a young woman who was taking English lit classes at the university and she they were studying the King James Bible in their English lit classes. And that's a pretty common thing to do. Uh, because of the the 16th century, the beautiful language of the 16th century, right? It's very Shakespearean. In any case, uh, she didn't really seem to understand what she was reading, and she was nervous about not doing well in this class, and she figured, well, if anyone's going to know what the Bible says, it's a pastor, right? So, So she comes, and she seeks me out, and she asks me to sit down with her, and we read the Bible together over a couple the course of a couple of weeks. But, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm an evangelist at heart. And so this is a woman who isn't a person of faith. Um, She's taking this English lit class for credit. Um, It's part of her schooling. And so I, I, at one point I say, ask her, you know, is, how is this resonating with you? And uh, what do you think of what you're reading? And could you ever imagine yourself becoming a follower of Jesus? And her reaction just totally caught me off guard because she said, uh, well, I would never become a Christian because Christianity is not good news for women. (laughs) And um, yeah, like it it practically broke my heart. I I sat there just kind of dumbfounded. And on hindsight, there was all kinds of things I wish I had said in that moment, you know, like, but, you know, look at Jesus and uh, look at the good things that the church has done in history. And, you know, I just, I I wanted to alleviate her um, notions about Christianity as being negative for women. But But at the end of the day, I found myself having to wrestle with the fact that actually Christianity has been hard on women um, in some ways. It's done some good things, but it's also done some pretty terrible things. And that throughout the history of Christian tradition, there's been some fairly troubling notions about women that have been passed on from generation to generation. Um, And so that was sort of the genesis of the book, wondering, well, if if uh, these troubling notions were passed on from generation to generation, like the idea that women are inferior to men or that their lives are worthless or that women are somehow born to lead and women to serve and women are subordinate or that women's natural sphere is in the home and they're, they're limited to that realm. And while men um, are to take uh, control of the public sphere, if all of those notions are passed on, um, and, and for a woman then in history to become an, a Christian, to, to say that she's a follower of Jesus meant subscribing to these ideas because they were so much part of the church. I wondered, 
to myself, well, what did women think of this? What did women in history think of the way in which, um, particularly Genesis 1 through 3, where a lot of these ideas emerge out of those texts? What did women think of those chapters? Did they interpret uh, those chapters in scripture as God saying women are inferior and women are subordinate and women are created just to be a helpmate to men? And like, so it started me on this quest of looking for women in history who had uh, looked at the Bible and what did they say about uh, women? Uh, uh, the uh, how did they interpret scripture and how did they particularly interpret the story of eve uh, and did they think all these things that the tradition had passed on to them or did they have another way of thinking about eve and as i began to dig i began to realize there was actually quite a few women shockingly who interpreted scripture for themselves who wrote their interpretations down, who circulated or published them, and they had very different things to say about uh, what the Bible has to say about women. So they had a much more positive understanding of what God's desire and will is for women. And I just think we need to know this. <laughs> we need to know that these women in history are. Uh, pushed back against these traditional interpretations because I think now they kind of form a testimony to the fact that in the history of Christianity, there's always been a tradition that suggested that women were not subordinate to men, but women were equal. And uh, these women represent that voice. Well, let's take that uh, a little uh, deeper and, and talk about gender ideology. You wrote, history has shown that societies ordered by gender hierarchy left women vulnerable to the whims and wishes of men who had no other qualification for assuming such power other than they were men. So talk to us about the patriarchal society of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. How do we hold gender equality in one hand while reading the very clearly discriminatory societal accounts of the scriptures in the other hand? Yeah, such a great question. Well, I think one of the things that we need to realize is that patriarchy was not born uh, in ancient Israel. Uh, so it's not ancient Israel that invented patriarchy. They inherited it, so to speak, from their surroundings. Uh, so if you look at the Sumerian culture or the Akkadian culture or the Assyrian culture, for instance, studies have been done and have shown that they were, they, they were, um, they were very patriarchal and there were very derogatory attitudes toward women being um, spread around within those, those particular cultures. So when you look at the place in which scripture was given birth, so in ancient Israel, and then later in um, ancient Palestine, so in first century Palestine, uh, that, the context of that was the Greco-Roman culture, and again, similarly, an inherited kind of patriarchy that uh, the church sort of lived and breathed and that gave rise to the scriptures that we have. So what's interesting about that is to notice that when you look at the scriptures in relation to their larger context in which uh, they, they arose, 
the scriptures are actually less patriarchal and their their language about women is less derogatory uh, than the surrounding culture. And it suggests a kind of trajectory. And I would actually say, even in scripture, we find evidence that what God intended was to move his people in a direction of gender equality. So there are indications of that. And I think one of the indications is Genesis 1, right? Uh, God created male and female in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, right? So both male and female are created in the image of God. And there seems to be a kind of inherent dignity, worth, and equality granted to them because of that. And we see this, actually, this phenomenon of uh, pushing the culture in the direction of gender equality throughout the scriptures. One of the things I do with my students is we read through the book of Genesis and, and they will note how many of the stories are devoted to women. Now, those stories are still written by men, but it's amazing that women get so much press in the book of Genesis, for instance. Um, women were evidently leaders in ancient Israel. So we have women like Deborah, who is a judge and a prophet, a prophetess, right? And we've got Huldah, who in the time of Josiah, uh, the, the leaders of Israel went to her to interpret the law for them because they couldn't understand it on their own, right? Um, we, we have evidence of Jesus uh, going to women and treating women with a, a dignity and respect that was not true of the larger culture. And in that way, modeling what, he, what God desires for male and female relations. And we have Paul speaking in Romans 16 of all these women who were leaders in the church. Uh, who were interpreters of scripture, who taught scripture, who led house churches, uh, who did the work of the gospel. And so I, I look at those texts and I think, wow, there's a lot of evidence that what God was in fact trying to do was move his people in the direction of gender equality. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You wrote... uh... The first wave of women's rights movement uh, was that it was started by women in the community of faith who rediscovered in scriptures. Um, as they reread the scriptures for what they had to say about women, they discovered that women were created as moral and intelligent beings by and in the image of God, who called even them to have dominion and responsibility over the earth. Mm-hmm. Take, us, take us a little deeper into Eve's implications for social reform. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that women discovered when they read the scriptures is they realized that some of the things that had been passed on to them about the role of women in uh, in this world, in society, and in the church were not actually taken out of the Bible. Like they're not from the Bible. So the, the notion that women can't vote, for instance, is not anywhere found in scripture. Um, the notion that women are relegated to the home and cannot participate in the public sphere, that you'd be hard pressed to make a case for that from scripture. And so as women discovered their own um, a sense of what God desired for them and how God saw them as image bearers of God, uh, of himself, they realized that they too had a place in this world that, um, and a calling in this world uh, that they wanted to live out. But then it, it, one of the things that's interesting is as they tried to do that, they got pushback <laughs> um, because the the culture didn't, appreciate their own new founded sense of 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 what it means to be a woman um, the freedom that they had found the liberation they had found from the scriptures so you get some you know someone like uh, sarah grimke or sarah and angelina grimke who they they go around and they are um, part of the abolition movement they're speaking against slavery and uh, they get pushed back because they're speaking to mixed crowds, male and female crowds. And uh, the culture doesn't seem to want to accept this. They say, well, a woman can't speak to mixed crowds. And they're like, but this is our calling, right? We're called to be kind of, uh, to push the culture in a, in a morally beneficial way. And we think that this is appropriate. So, so yeah. The, um, there, as, as they began to realize that uh, their own rights were being curbed as they were trying to promote the rights of others and the human dignity of others, then they moved increasingly toward promoting their own rights, the rights of women, uh, so that they could live and be and contribute to society in all the ways they felt like God had, had uh, blessed them with. Um, so that they could be image bearers of God in this world. Hmm. You did a historical analysis of various scholarly biblical interpretations of womanhood, um, the roles of women at home, the workplace and church. Um, I wonder if you would share some of the most mind numbing scholarly work that you came across. Um, you mean by the women? Like, no, no, no. But, oh. you know, uh, probably written by guys. <laughs> just the, just the, you know, maybe for lack of better terms, the stupidity. <laughs> okay. So this is, uh, this actually isn't in the book. It might be in a footnote, but there was, I think it's in the seventh, 17th century, a man who wrote a book saying, and it was titled, Women Are Not Human. <laughs> And um, he, I think it was supposed to be a parody on something. In any case, he, 
uh, he wrote this book and, or somebody said this, this thing that women are not human and that was supposed to be a parody. And then somebody picked up on it and wrote a book on it. And the person who wrote the book went and he presented this material before an audience of women. And the story goes that the women got up and they picked up their chairs and they beat the guy up. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of funny, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, like you get a part of what's going on and, and, and we have it in our culture too. I mean, you, you get really thoughtful theology, but you get really bad theology being um, expounded in churches, right? So you get these pastors who are standing up and saying these really strange things about, you know, marriage, that, you know, the woman exists only to, for the man's benefit. And if the man is unhappy, then, you know, then, then it's the woman's fault and, um, this is her lot in life because she plunged the world into sin. And, you know, like, so you get this kind of talk about the relationship between men and women, that women are really subordinate to men and that they are, they exist not as people in their own rights, but uh, simply to serve men and their goals and promote uh, their interests and passions and well-being in life. And, you know, obviously, I think all of us would say, yeah, that's, that's not quite right. <laughs> obviously, all of our listeners stand in that, that perspective. But I dare say that, um, you know, it, it is shocking to me at the uh, gender discrimination in our world today and how people still stand behind it. But maybe let's give a little bit more platform to some of the more remarkable work that you discovered. Um, I was drawn to the work of Sarah Hale, not because she holds my namesake, uh, but because her work uh, that you cited was fascinating. So what other writers like Sarah Hale did you did you find that surprised you? Yeah, so I, I have my favorites. Um, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites among your children, but <laughs> I feel like I have favorites among the women that I discovered. I, I think all of them have something to contribute, but there's a couple that kind of stand out for me. One of them is a 17th century woman, Bashua Macon, and she interpreted the story of Eve in light of um, women's education and really her desire was to promote women's education in part because she was a businesswoman and she wanted to open a school for girls but at the time uh, it wasn't considered a proper for girls to go to school or at least they could go to, to finishing school but they couldn't go to a school that offered a classical kind of education that paralleled that of the boys and so but she thought that was really important. And so she concedes actually to traditional interpretations of Genesis one through three. And she says, well, you know, people say women are the weaker sex and clearly the woman is weaker morally because look, she plunged the world into sin. She accepted the fruit from the serpent and then passed it on to her husband. And now look at the world, it's kind of a mess. Um, and then she went on to say, but, but the remedy to that is not really male headship, it's women's education. I mean, if you want to instill moral fortitude in women, then you gotta educate them. So she was sort of using traditional interpretations in a 
to, to create an argument for women's education. And she knows exactly what she's doing. So I am convinced that this woman didn't believe a word that she said. <laughs> she didn't believe women were inferior or the weaker sex, but she, she, um, she adopts the stance and she says at one point, to ask too much is to lose all. And somehow she realizes that it's gonna take baby steps. It's gonna take um, opening up um, uh, uh, certain avenues for women for before you know, there will be a recognition of full equality. And um, so I just admire her tenacity, her courage, her sass. <laughs> I think she's uh, really interesting. Another woman that um, I think just continues actually to haunt me is Catherine Booth, who is the mother of the Salvation Army. And she wrote a defense of women's preaching. And she really wrote it to defend Phoebe Palmer, uh, the, the woman who started the holiness movement. Um, but in her defense, she basically asks the question, what if the church is wrong? about excluding women from the pulpit. Like what are the ramifications of the fact that the church has then barred women from the pulpit for centuries? How many women have been hurt by uh, this confining of their call, this limiting of their call of not being able to contribute their gift to the church in this way? And how has the church limited the spread of the gospel because, because they won't allow 50% of the population to participate in this work. I, I find that a really haunting question. So I don't know if she's a favorite as much as she, want, as she is one that continues to nag at me as I, I think about these matters. Now, CBF was grounded in endorsing women called into the ministry. And while this movement, um, you know, we've been a champion for that cause. Very few of our CBF churches have women as their senior pastor. We mm -hmm. certainly have a great number um, of associate ministers and staff ministers that are, that are women. So nevertheless, we can find ourselves in a completely different place than most of our other Baptist counterparts who, who don't, uh, not only don't endorse women in ministry, but certainly never as a senior pastor. But you wrote, um, women who were filled with the spirit and gifted uh, for ministry struggled with commitment for the church's authority to deny women access to the pulpit. Why? Um, we Would the church reject their participation in the proclamation and spread of the gospel? So talk to us about how Eve's story uh, has been used to suppress women's voice for leadership in the church and how you want your readers to rethink what they think they know about this parable. Yeah, so, you know, like there's a whole tradition of interpretation on this text that looks at Genesis 2 and the fact that the, the man, it, you know, it was not good to be, for the man to be alone, so God creates a helpmate for him. And the question always has been, well, what does it mean that God created a helpmate? And so there are some who see male-female subordination in Genesis 2. Uh, now, the women that I looked at, a lot of them would say things like, well, that um, the man needs a helpmate uh, suggests actually not something about the woman 
but it suggests something about the man. It says that it's not good for him to be alone. So in other words, he's not complete without the woman. So they interpreted it not in a way that suggested a hierarchy between the man, male and female, but in a way that suggested uh, that uh, there was to be companionship and mutuality between male and female. So they didn't see that hierarchy. And, and a lot of them noted what many scholars note today, that the word there for helpmate as in Hebrew is azer. And that is a word that is used also to describe God's relationship to Israel. And we would never say of God that, uh, you know, he is subordinate to Israel because he's a helper to Israel. In the same way, uh, the woman isn't subordinate to the man because she's a helper to the man, right? And then the, looking at uh, Genesis 3, 16, where God addresses the woman and says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And I think there again, has been a tradition of interpretation that has looked at that text and said, that must mean that men are to assume these positions of leadership over women, and women are not to assume positions of leadership over men. And then uh, later, I think there came this idea, oh, this maybe this only pertains to marriage and doesn't pertain to society at large, although I think we still see that that is an underlying belief um, in society at large. And I think it goes to exactly what you were suggesting, that women still struggle to, uh, there's still a glass ceiling for women. They still struggle to get to those positions of senior leadership, whether it's in church or in, in business or in educational institutions like my own. Uh, women still struggle to get those uh, positions of senior leadership, because I think there's still a sense of women needing to earn respect rather than being given respect. And I think there's still a sense of um, women somehow being less than men until proven otherwise, right? But in any case, I go back to this text, Genesis 3.16, and whereas some would say that's an affirmation of uh, male-female hierarchy. The women pushed back on that and they said, we don't think that this is a prescription or a judgment of God on men and women and their relationships together. We think that this is a description of the consequence of the fall. And, and then they would go one step further, and I think this is really clever. They would say, we think what God is doing is warning us that our husbands are going to try and lord it over us and that we need to resist that, that that is actually not the will of God. That's not what God intended for us and for marriage, the marriage relationship. So I don't know. I think that's, that's quite clever. <laughs> what surprised you most in your research for this book? I think what's, well, I would say two things. Uh, one is that there were so many women who had written on this text that I had never heard of. So I, you know, I've been studying the Old Testament for quite some time. I did my Master of Divinity and then my PhD. And never once had I come across a woman interpreter until we get to the 20th century. It never occurred to me that women in history had written on scripture. So to discover 
over a hundred women between the 14th and the 19th century. And I, I think I'm just scratching the surface here. I think there's a lot more out there. Um, that, that was surprising. And I think for someone like myself, it feels like I found myself in Christian history. <laughs> like I could, I could finally see people like myself, women like myself in Christian history. And I feel like somehow along the way, I gained a great cloud of witnesses on whose shoulders I now stand. So that was just a beautiful thing. The other thing is these women fairly consistently point out, and I, I think the church needs to hear this, that, um, that if the church does not subscribe to the full equality and worth of women, it is because they have accommodated to a patriarchal culture. They have allowed themselves to be influenced by a patriarchal culture. And so they're not listening to God and the word of God, but they're listening to the culture at large. And I think that's really interesting because I think there's, you know, in my life, I've heard again and again this argument that, well, the church is just taking up this issue of gender equality and gender relations because of the feminist movement, applying pressure on the church, and the church is trying to be politically correct. And these women would argue actually quite the opposite. They would say, the church lost its moorings when it gave itself over to a patriarchal system. As you think about um, the many readers of this book, certainly those in the academic field, but also those in the local church, how do you imagine them using your book as a resource? Oh, such a great question. So I had a colleague who used a draft copy of the manuscript for a class that she was teaching. And there were a variety of uh, people from different cultures and both male and female who were part of this class. And they went through the book and then they gave me feedback on it, which was really helpful. And uh, two things that stand out for me from that feedback are one, there, the, there was a, male student in the class who said to me, it seems like in your discussion questions, because I, I included discussion questions that are actually at the back of the book, he says, I, it seems to me in your discussion questions, you're assuming a female audience. But he said to me, I think the church needs to have men and women read this book together. And so would you be willing to include some questions that help men think through these issues as well. So don't assume that your reading audience is women. So yeah, I had initially thought that women's groups might uh, enjoy reading through this book, but he opened my eyes to the idea of what if men and women read this through this book together and had that conversation about what, what do healthy and godly gender relations look like? What does it look like to relate to each other as male and female uh, through uh, in the eyes of faith, um, in the context of faith. So that would be one. The second is a lot of the people in this class were from uh, various countries around the globe. And uh, obviously, I only had access to women who 
whose languages I could speak. And uh, so, so that was fairly limited. It was predominantly European women and American and Canadian women. But there are other women who have done interpretive work on scripture. And so some of the women who read the book said to me, this is inspiring because it inspires us to go and search our own tradition for women's voices. Where do we find women's voices on scripture? Or where do we find women's voices in theology that uh, we can claim and reclaim in the tradition? Um, so I, I think that's kind of cool that there, there was some initiative and inspiration to think about how, how do we extend this work? How do we expand this work of reclaiming women's voices? Yeah. Might seem silly to ask this, but what's your greatest hope for the book? <laughs> oh, um, I wish I had a really clever answer for that, but I think I was just so excited to get it out there. Um, I guess I guess my greatest hope would be that it initiates good conversations in the church about gender relations. And I so long for the church to be a place that models healthy gender relations to the to a watching world, so that uh, you don't get women coming uh, to campus pastors and saying. I don't want to become a Christian because it's not good news for women. I want the church to model how the gospel is good news for women. And it's good news for men too. It's good news for men and women in their relationship with each other. So yeah, that would probably be my greatest hope. Well, pretty clever answer. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best way for listeners to stay connected with you? Oh, such a good question. Um, well, uh, I, I am on Facebook, so they are welcome to follow me or, or look me up on Facebook. Um, I, I would be ecstatic to be in conversation with others who are interested in this conversation. So, uh, people are welcome and, and free to email me if they so choose. I, I unfortunately don't do a lot of social media, so I, I haven't quite figured out the whole Twitter thing um, yet, but maybe that'll come. Amanda, thank you for bringing a unique perspective into how we see and receive Eve as a chin. <laughs> I did it again. Good gracious. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So anything that you felt bad about at all, again, <laughs> me okay let's do that one more time um <laughs> um all right amanda thank you for bringing a unique perspective into how we see and receive eve as a champion for gender equality it has been my pleasure to have this conversation and like i said if this book can do uh good for in terms of helping people live more fully into the gospel of jesus christ then i will be thrilled well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return. <laughs>